Welcome to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with my co-host, Amy Donaldson. Hello. And uh, today, we are going to be talking impeachment. <laughs> and a the lot country's more favorite subject. Yes. Well, not necessarily Jason's. Well, it's, but it's yeah. kind of, but I mean, yeah. you know, not sort of. Uh, but today, uh, University of Utah political science professor James Curry is going to educate us literally on uh, the why, why this kind of thing is so uh, compelling. And also, what what are some of the uh, political implications of what's happening uh, during this impeachment uh, trial and the process? Because when it comes down to it, Professor Curry, I don't know that we're going to see much different in this in terms of who's in the administration. Because as we imagine, it's going to probably come out at least uh, you know for the most part along political lines, right? Party yeah. lines. Yeah, I, I think the expectation and the only reasonable expectation is that the end of the trial, um, unless some revelation comes forward that really is just shakes the foundation of what we've known for the last six months is going to be a fairly partisan outcome. Okay, so we just had something that sort of shook the foundation. We don't know if he's going to testify or not yet, but uh, John Bolton, um, and actually this is a totally different subject, but it really bothers me that people who are policymakers and they're in the administration and they should be um, reporting some of these things to their to the Department of Justice or to, to uh, you know, the, the powers that be that could correct the, if there are wrongdoings going on, are instead choosing to leave the administration and write a book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, part of that is you get folks like John Bolton is a good example of someone who believes really strongly in strong executive power and strong executive privilege. And so, like, he's caught in a hard place for his own belief system in that, like, he doesn't think what Trump did was right, clearly, and that's why he's writing a book about it and willing to talk about it. But he didn't it. say anything about but it he didn't at the say time anything about it because he doesn't think it's proper for the president's aides to contradict them while in that position because the president is supposed to be very powerful and have the strong control over the executive branch. And we know that from John Bolton's past experiences in the executive branch, that that's how he sees it. And there's a lot of people who work in that realm who see it that way. And so for him, this is the more expedient way to go about it. Which is interesting I would also say it's the more self-serving way. It could be, yes. Well, what I, what I find distressing about it is, again, because as a, uh, I'm from Chicago, everybody knows, where the most corrupt politics in the world takes place, or at least among the most corrupt well, politics in the world. I don't know. I think they might compete with you now. Well, you know, <laughs> New York's pretty bad. You know, every city's got it. But uh, Chicago, you know, just, you know, we just run by Democrats who are just as crooked as, you know, anything in the world, as Lombard Street, as they would say. So when it's in San Francisco, people, if, if, if he is doing something that you find improper in front of you, even though you support a strong executive branch, wouldn't you, if, if this is, this is to me, this is patriotism, right? Is to expose corruption when you observe it, not later on when, you know, you could, because you can't do anything now, but when you're there, you could create the kind of environment where that kind of thing would have to stop, or at the very least, they would have to hide it in such a way that then you know they would be dishonest and they were trying to do something that might not necessarily be in the best interest of the country. Yeah, and you can see that there's a, that some folks in the executive branch and in the administration do react that way, right? We saw that with whoever the whistleblower was, that person did react in a way of, this isn't right, I'm going to go through this. Like this mm-hmm. channel, this process that exists that Congress and, created to, and it's working so to well. whistleblow, and it, you know, in, in a way, yeah, it did, you know, like yeah. and led to an impeachment. What well, we saw and, with Sally Yates, right? Yes, and at the very beginning of this administration, and and then also with all, with Sally Yates did. 
um, she resigned rather than do something that she felt yes, was and spoke uh, and spoke out and spoke out um, about it. Mm-hmm. And then you also see with the, the the numerous folks that the House got to testify before the Intelligence Committee. These are all folks who some of whom had worked for the Trump administration, yes. some of whom still work for the Trump administration, who thought the right thing to do was to come and testify and tell Congress about the things that they saw that they were that they thought were wrong. Example is uh, Ambassador Sondland, who's still ambassador. Um, but he thought what he saw was improper, and he came and he and he told Congress about it. So some folks do that. Other folks, they they hold to this this understanding of the presidency and the power of the presidency that is almost, but not quite, to the position that Nixon took after he was mm-hmm. pushed out of office, which is if the president does it, it's legal. Well, there's a you know there's a legal theory about that, <laughs> um, and it's pretty extreme. And but there are people who work in government, who work in the White House, who come pretty close to that of a really strong executive. The executive has the right to take these actions. The people who work for the president, what who, what they owe is to be loyal to the president they're working for at that time. And the president, by the way, this, so here, and again, this is me, right? So I see this as the president works for us. Literally, he works for the country. We elected him. And that is not in question. So therefore... Uh, they are working for us in our best yeah. interest, not in the president's best interest. And part of the reason we have the government that we have is so that we didn't have a king. We didn't have a dictator. Mm-hmm. And we, we had someone who is accountable to the people. George Washington famously did not want to be king. He wanted mm-hmm. a government for the people. Mm-hmm. And s- somehow that is being lost on these people who consider themselves constitutionalists because apparently they don't remember any of what I just said. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, and this is, I mean, that's where the, where the difference breaks down. Mm-hmm. And I think you'd find more folks who are more in your camp on that, that if the president is doing something they think is wrong, they should respond by either resigning or saying no or telling the proper authorities. But there are often enough really high level advisors whose perspective is like, well, the president's in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, I work for the president. And right, if that's not going to work out, then the I will walk away and, and that'll be that. Well, and I think that, um, so it was my opinion before this, you know, uh, impeachment stuff was constantly in the news and we were discussing constitutional law in the front pages of the newspaper on a daily basis, uh, which doesn't happen very often. It hasn't, you know, I mean, we don't talk about that stuff. Um, other than passing and getting your high school diploma, that's about the extent of your, of most of our knowledge, mm-hmm. right? But it was my opinion before this that, um, the power of the executive had sort of been slowly expanded, starting with Clinton and then, um, well, well, further back than that. Even. No, no. But yeah. so that's what I started thinking about mm-hmm. after I thought really Clinton started it. And then G.W. Bush took it to new levels. And then uh, Obama with uh, DACA, which everyone knows I've railed about that a million times on this podcast. Um, and then there's, you know, uh Donald Trump, who I think in his first 180 days signed more executive orders than like the last five guys or something. Um, yeah, I mean, so the, the power of the presidency has expanded pretty much continuously over American history. And that's what I started looking at, yeah. like under Reagan. And, and I was like, well, OK, there's that example. And then um, I thought really since the Depression. Really since forever. Yeah. Um, so it just I mean, depends been, on the president. I mean, early, early presidents, it was a lot more variable. You had some presidents who had a lot of authority and you said presidents who didn't. Folks like Jefferson and Jackson and, and whatnot were, you know, quite powerful in Lincoln. But mm-hmm. you had a lot of presidents who weren't. But, you know, as time wore on, presidents got better at sort of cultivating authority. Congress was more and more willing to delegate authority because there were a lot of like massive federal just management problems. And that's that was where hard I... for Congress to do itself. Yeah. And so this has been a general constant shift over American history where the president has been able to consolidate more power 
But, you know, you can also go too far in that and thinking that the president is unchecked, which would, would also would not be a proper conclusion. When we come back, I want to uh, ask Professor Curry uh, about where he thinks this, this process uh, in, with regard to the impeachment goes and, and potentially what we could see after this is all over. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Back with Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're speaking with uh, U of University of Utah political science professor James Curry. And Professor Curry, I wanted to ask you a little bit about so impeachment as it's happening now. The, the House voted to impeach, mm-hmm. so now it's the Senate's turn to have a trial. We're still kind of discerning whether or not there's going to be witnesses, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I what I was hoping to get from you is so how does this play out? I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure that we're not going to have an, uh, a president removed because, as you kind of described offline, that you know the reasons this process is difficult is because that's kind of how the founders wanted it to be in the first place. Yeah. The founders, the founders didn't say a ton about impeachment. They didn't put a ton into the constitution. They only wrote a little bit about it in the Federalist papers. But one thing they did was set a really high bar in the Senate for removal. You need two thirds of senators to agree to remove a president, which is something that we've never done. Maybe it would have happened under Nixon. We don't know because he resigned. Probably he resigned because it was going to happen. Because he thought that was going to happen. Yeah. Um, But it's a high bar. And that would mean that you would need a lot. You need all the Democrats and a lot of the Republican senators to go along. And that seems unlikely unless, you know, something really radical changes. But, you know, no revelation that's come out so far about anything that happened with the president has been enough to really shift more than one or two Republicans to even really considering this. Well, we're talking about getting four Republicans. To block yes. it, so they can have witnesses. Yes, just that has been possible. A, it's been a Herculean. Well, thanks to three. John Bolton. There's, yes, so. there were two before John Bolton. Or at least they're at least considering it. There's clearly three now yeah. with Romney and Collins and Murkowski who are said have said pretty much that they want to hear witnesses. They want to at least hear witnesses. from Bolton. So. You need one more for fifty-one. Mm-hmm. Fifty could be enough. Mm-hmm. We don't actually know like what would be the process mm-hmm. right now if it was a 50-50 would because there's some precedent and there's some some rules that would suggest that John Roberts could cast a tie-breaking vote in all likelihood he would decline and then there's a question of whether or not then the vice president is allowed to cast a tie-breaking vote the way he does under anything else mm-hmm. but he, he also decline, might com- yes. likely decline which means it would be a tie vote which is a failed vote so in all likelihood you need one more senator and from what we've heard in yeah. recent days, there's a handful of Republican senators who are undecided about whether or not they want witnesses. There mm-hmm. are some who may want to strike a deal where there would be a really broad set of witnesses. There's some who might just want a narrow set of witnesses. There's some who could be persuaded either way. So that's really in flux. Yeah. But that's nowhere even like we're Close talking to maybe to, to 52, yeah. 53 senators who might want to hear witnesses, which is nowhere near. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no suggestion that any of those Republicans want to remove the president from office. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. I've heard a lot or I read a lot, actually, um, about people uh, supposing what happens after this. Right. So they're sort of uh, talking about the aftermath of this, because I think most everyone thought he would get impeached and they thought he would. Uh, win in the Senate, that he would not be removed from office in the Senate, um, and that none of the arguments or witnesses, they haven't changed very many minds. You know, yeah. um, I think that it, it's minuscule, right? Mm-hmm. A couple of percentage points one way or the other. Um, but I think that um, the the question I had for you was, as they as we look in the aftermath of this, I've heard people assert that the president will actually have more power 
And I wonder why do they assert that? I don't. What? I've heard that too. Yeah. Um, and I've had a f- conversations with folks who've made that case to me. Because you could be impeached again. And and, and right? I and I don't quite understand that. I don't. Yeah. It it's the way it's been explained to me is it's like oh then his behavior has been condoned and this would embolden the president. Well, we didn't see that with Clinton. Um, not only that, not only that, but I would I would dare say he can't get much bolder. Yeah, so that's that itself <laughs> right, is a I'm good point. He's, he's I mean, you stand on the lawn and yeah. say, "Hey, China, I think you should look into this yeah. too." Right? I think yeah, I think what you're saying is what I'm doing is not wrong, and you can come at me all you want, but I'm not yes. going to stop doing it. And you know, it it I had someone argue me the other day, like, "Well, this condones the behavior. This means that we're telling future presidents it's okay." I I think literally this episode tell, it tells future presidents it's not okay it's because the there was a reaction. Yes, the House did impeach the president, but the Senate he, did it, have a trial. He got acquitted, but it's it's like with with Clinton and, and Clinton's impeachment. Right. Prior to the, like the Clinton situation with the sex scandal mm-hmm. and all that, this was just sort of like not something that was talked about in American politics. It was fine. Now it's not. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of that has to do with the fact it that it became behavior that was going to be a reaction to from Congress, that you could be impeached over this, that you could get in trouble for this type of behavior. All presidents since then have kind of been on notice. Do that you, could be the same thing with, with President Trump. Do you, Doing these types of things might get you in trouble. And Trump might have survived, but the next guy might not. OK, so again, maybe that's my question, because I, I don't see Trump thinking this is trouble. Cause not for, for him, him, but... I mean, presidents are constrained more by what Congress is and is what and is not willing to give them in terms of policy and in terms of funding and in terms of legislation, what mm-hmm. the public is and is not willing to follow on. And I don't see this as broadening the president's support in the public or broadening his coalition of support in the Congress. If any, I mean, best case scenario for the president is just that it's unchanged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it's not, I don't see him becoming massively popular in the aftermath. I think people misread the Clinton case in that. Mm-hmm. where Clinton became more popular because he was able to seem above the fray during impeachment and because the economy was booming. And those two things led to con- Clinton throughout his second term to continually become more and more powerful. Okay. Okay, in so the Trump's- sense that he became more and more popular. Yeah. But President Trump's approval rating has been pretty static forever because people have really strong opinions about him one way or the other, and it doesn't seem like that's going to budge. But the economy yeah. is still good. The economy is good. But it's he, not doesn't late 90s good. Uh-huh. he doesn't seem above the fray. He doesn't seem above the fray. And he doesn't fray. seem above the fray. Yeah. Uh, President Clinton was pretty suave in the fact that he just kind of was like, look at these I, and com- I, look at these people in Congress who are trying to do these things to me, and I'm working for the American people. Look at the economy. Well, and I also think that um, he didn't really gain the popularity that like the peak of his popularity came after he left office. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I think- and it was, it was trending up through the last few years sure. in office, yeah. but it, so much of that really had to do with the economy. Yeah. I mean, uh, like sadly, really- <laughs> I mean, that's the thing I, I almost, which tanked, by the way, the moment he left office, uh, is, I mean, yes, we, which, which often on- happens. That, yes. I mean, this is a, this is a popular story in American history of presidents riding a wave to popularity as things boom. And then things crash soon after, because at the end of the day, governments and presidents have, only so much influence over global economies. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean presidents aren't going to get the credit or the blame. Right. No, because look, G.W. Bush enjoyed great popularity after and after, he after 9-11. Look at, and look, but look, no, after he left office oh, yeah. and look at the economy when he left office. 
It yeah. was you couldn't. Yeah, have been, and you know. you've seen him rebound. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I just think that we and we definitely, yeah. but we definitely tend to romanticize, right? We're, oh, we all we romanticize we're like, all I, past presidents. We joking. My mom and I yeah. joke that you know, sort of like we're in a abusive relationship with our leaders, <laughs> where we just they, like they lie to us, and we just believe yeah. the next time is not going to be the same. Well, yes, and we we romanticize presidents after they're gone. Yeah, um, we we hold up like this guy was popular. He did every great things for the American people. We do this with presidents who were very controversial at the time. FDR is maybe the best example. FDR is held up now as this great president <laughs> who did amazing things. People hate like some people loved him. A lot of people also hated, hated him. him. And he was really controversial yes. both among Republicans on the other side of the aisle mm-hmm. and in his own party. Yep. And it's it's after the fact that all that gets glossed over. And that happens with most presidents with some exceptions. Okay. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about uh, the, the impeachment process and just the 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 office of the presidency and how, uh, you know, varying personalities are able to prosper or have trouble and in, in, in how they eventually become remembered uh, while they're in office. You're listening to Voices of Reason. back with Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today speaking with you at View, uh, political science professor James Curry. Uh, and we were just having a conversation offline. I, I would assert, and I obviously I'm wrong, uh, that... Uh, As usual. No, just kidding. Not the first time, right? Uh, I, I, I would consider, politically speaking, uh, Donald Trump to be unique because he has been able to get away with, and I, I, I use that term, uh, you know, legitimately, I think, with things that uh, previous... Uh, seasoned politicians have not been able to. And I would suggest uh, when I, w- I was recently suggesting to uh, Professor Curry that, for instance, when he was running for president in 2016, among over a dozen people who were seasoned uh, uh, candidates, they would make a mistake. He would somehow pounce on it and then they would be gone. You're talking the Republican, Republican Party. Yeah. This is just starting that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And now he, he seems to be doing the same thing. Uh, in, in terms of just overall uh, politics, being able to get away with things that otherwise might submarine the uh, the power and uh, just the To me, a good contrast is like Mitt Romney having his dog in a kennel and strapping yeah. it to the car. And that really haunted him. Like it became, in a way, but I mean, yeah. he still won the nomination. He won the nomination. Still very close but, to and then the he made a comment about, uh, you know, yeah. the I don't know what he called, like the one, the... Oh, the, uh, the, yeah. the other half lives. The 47%. Yeah. yeah. And that sort of haunted him. Things like that, I thought, caused him trouble that wouldn't go away as far. Yeah. But I think the way, reason you think Trump is different is because of social media. And because he won. Well, FR, yeah. anyone, any, but he also said things to me that just seemed outrageous. I mean, yeah. like the whole grab people by the privates. Uh, when, when, he said, when he said on national television, I could shoot somebody in the middle of midtown Manhattan yeah. and, and I would still get elected. He wasn't joking. He's, I mean, he's, he's way more, I'll, I'll give you this, he's way more bombastic. So the things he says mm-hmm. strike us just like, what? Yeah. Because they're, they're we're even. We're just not used to politicians. We're not used yeah. to because politicians generally, just for their own prudence, tend to sort of rein Button that in up. a little yeah. bit, even if they might think that in their head. Um, but it's – I would – And I think most people believe that politicians do think that in their head. So I think yeah. we've all heard that. We've heard the Johnson tapes, right? We've heard – Because Johnson and Nixon were when, – really when the doors were closed, it were, really came out. And oh, so yeah. you know – 
And we've that, and we've now heard from, uh, some racial stuff from Reagan, right? From Reagan. So we've heard these recordings, yeah. and so now we know our heroes. They're not always what they present may themselves have been a to little be. bit more like Trump um, than dislike but, Trump. But part of it is, is uh, there's a couple of things that I think that we miss about Trump that shows the ways that he is similar and that it is explainable to things in the past. Part of it was in 2016 we didn't recognize that he was really, or most people didn't recognize that he was at that time, already the front runner for the nomination. Yes. That he had the strongest base of support. So, And those people were already decided that this is the guy they were with. They weren't changing their mind. And when you have that in a nomination contest, you can get away with a little bit more because you can you can take like the, the press backlash, and it's fine because you have this core base of support. Mm-hmm. When you don't, and this is all the other candidates who didn't have his core base of support, any little thing could just be people be like, well, maybe not that guy because I have other options. Um, I don't think we recognize that. At I the think time you see that up with Bernie Sanders. You see that with Sanders. You yeah. see it more with Biden. Yeah, because Biden a, is the front runner. Yeah, and he has well, a certain base of support where the like things gaffes that Biden does when Biden does Biden things and forgets stuff or says something goofy. Talks, says there's a things, certain yeah. like thirty percent of the Democratic electorate who's just like, yeah, but that's the guy I like. But that's that's my guy, and yeah. I'm okay with that. And that's how it was with Trump, but we just didn't quite recognize it at the time because he seemed like an outsider. It seemed like he was doing things that are unusual. I also and, think we thought nobody with no political experience could win. I really yeah. think that the media like helped with that because I heard on all these political shows, and but he has no experience. Right? We think the resume matters, and yes. what we didn't take because usually into, does. Yeah, well, it has in the past. <laughs> that's right? why he's unique. I'm just throwing. And that's that. what's yeah, unique. I, that I, is what's unique about Trump. He was the first like true sort of political neophyte outsider who just kind of walked in and was a front runner right away. That's unusual and hasn't happened. Very well, for often. president, for like president. Who, who now? President. But now you see all these other rich guys. Well, that's always happened. Yes, and now you see because now you see people like, well, then I can do it too. Exactly. But we always saw this at the congressional level or at the state level. It was new yeah. at the president level. There's only been a handful of presidential candidates like who won the nomination. Well, even governors, because uh, yeah. well, you, you see it with yeah, you see it sure. with governors, but it, it was new at the presidency with one or two other examples. But those people also lost the general election. Mm-hmm. He also like Wendell Wilkie is a good example. Wasn't against FDR had no political experience he was a businessman but he lost was and it um Ross uh, Perot. Uh, Lincoln Ross Perot. yeah there you go Lincoln was like the first one to lose everything and then win yes. right but he'd run at for least all he'd been in Congress yeah but yeah so so he had some experience he right had, but he had something and yeah. he'd been engaged in Pol- first in Whig politics. party and then Republican party politics at a prominent level for at that point 15 years and yeah. so you could say like this guy had been involved in politics he had some he track come record out of nowhere yeah. yeah so I I think and I I do think we thought that mattered yes and I, I think most people did and that also made it more shocking and then it's also reinforced by the fact that he won if he had lost which he very very narrowly missed losing it was a very very close election if he had lost in 2016 then we'd look back at all these things and be like well that's why because he didn't do these things and he was too bombastic Mm -hmm. and he was too crass and he made too many mistakes yeah because eked it out we're now like well everything's different but yeah. we're talking about a really small number so of votes that could that, switch one way or the other. How does that play into impeachment? So you look at all these diff- uh, what's different and what's similar, and then you look at impeachment with a, tr- a career politician like a Clinton mm-hmm. or you know the articles that were drawn up with Nixon or Johnson. Wh- what what do you see some different 
Does it does it impact him differently because it, he doesn't have that? It doesn't. And I think this goes beyond impeachment. That goes to sort of everything with the Trump administration. He's still a political amateur and he still responds in a way that is makes him a political amateur. And you can say, like, well, his approval rating hasn't really moved. Mm-hmm. Like maybe he hasn't been damaged very much. You could also make the case that he'd probably be a lot more popular if he did sort of the normal things that normal politicians do of being magnanimous and trying to, like, avoid, mm-hmm. like, getting down in the mud. Mm-hmm. The things that folks like Clinton did when they were being impeached. OK. And, and that I'll kept say t- propped them up a little bit more. He might be a much more popular president. If he did the things that other politicians did, but but I also but he think thinks he's also the he's, most popular president in the world. He's a reality. It doesn't. He, yeah. It's a, he's a reality star. So like he he, he does can't, what he knows he, exactly. Right. And right. and the only thing he knows is how do you create controversy? How do you create? Yeah. How do you how do you whip up a tornado and then I ride it? Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm the hero. But with a president with this kind of economy should be more popular. A president with this kind of economy should be cruising to re-election, and he's not. He's going to be locked in, at best, a really tight election fight. And someone who's presiding over this kind of economy should not be in a fight. It should be, he should be the prohibitive favorite to win re-election. Instead, it's like, at best, 50-50. Okay, when we come back, I want to ask you about that, because I have some questions about the impeachment impact on that, whether it's been a positive or a negative. Okay. When we come back, we'll discuss that. This is Voices of Reason. We are back with Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, speaking today with University of Utah political science professor James Curry. And uh, we, we spent the last segment talking about kind of why... Uh, a president who is presiding over such a positive uh, circumstance, uh, economically speaking, uh, around the country, uh, Donald Trump has not been able to kind of capitalize on that, mostly because of what has been his his uh, his strong point, actually. That is being who he is authentically and riding it, the, uh, you know, maybe not so low, but also not so high. And and so in that way, he, he doesn't. I don't know. I don't know that he cares because he's. I think in his mind he thinks he's doing great. So it, you know, it's all good. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, Professor Curry is saying that if he was with this economy, he should be a prohibitive favorite to win uh, the upcoming presidential election. But in reality, it's probably going to be a pretty close call, just like uh, four years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, well, I think because you have he, somebody like you say on the Democratic side, you're probably going to have a similarly. Um, committed base that's going to deal yes. with most anything. And a very riled up Democratic yeah. base. We saw this in 2018. Yeah, like, and it's very. It's just these people in the middle who are like, do we still care that people are not jerks? Right. I don't. You know, yeah. or say jerky things. I guess is yeah. more the thing. Um, I I think the thing that the impeachment, as I kind of watch things unfold and watch his reaction to them, I see his reaction on Twitter to John Bolton's revelations in his book. Right, mm-hmm. that he. Um, wanted to hold up that aid until Trump got dirt on the Democrats, including Biden, and, which Trump totally denies. And um, and I see people um, sort of, you know, getting in their trenches. Right. But I wondered if that um, if if that has any chance of eroding his 
true base, this whole impeachment, because I don't think people trust the political people who love Trump do not trust the political process. They do not trust the political systems. Right. There's also an assumption by most Americans that like, well, they're all doing these things, too, Mm -hmm. which generally isn't true. There's generally less corruption than most Americans think there is. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is how you react when somebody that you support does something that you might see as wrong. Your reaction tends to be like, well, they're doing it, too. So why can't my guy do it? Yeah, uh, and that, it's based on a false assumption, but that's the reaction. Um, so, it, but I don't think I've ever seen it be the defense so hard and so public. Trump right? Is, Trump has a tremendous amount of loyalty yeah. among people who support him, more than a lot of presidents. Not mm-hmm. more than, not necessarily more than all of them, but more than a lot. Mm-hmm. And you can pick out presidents in American history who had this kind of like just unwavering support among some segment of the population, whether it was Andrew Jackson or FDR or folks mm-hmm. like that, where it's just like they were not breaking with this guy no matter what. For Trump, he clearly does. And it's clearly a specific subset. And it's a subset that's supportive of him. Because they they just they like what he's doing and that's yeah. that's great. I'm gonna but it's own, enough to it's yeah. enough to keep his approval rating where it is. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to be able to m- nudge much higher than that because there's also a very maybe slightly larger segment who just don't like him. Yeah. So I guess if there's an entrenched Trump support, there's an entrenched Democratic support for either Sanders or Biden, uh, who look or like whoever. yeah whoever comes out of that. Um, but then there's these people in the middle who are swayed one way or the other, or who yeah. decide that they'll tolerate one side or the other. Like like how does this impact that group? Because those are the people yeah. that are interesting to me, and not the people who say they're undecided, but they really yeah. are. Because that's and, that's and, a mistake I think. Yeah, media well, I want to know who's undecided. There's, well, part of it is there's just not that many people who, who will truly, vote who are truly undecided. There's yeah. a lot of people who might truly be undecided. Most of those people simply don't vote. Yeah, among people who show up and vote. Mm-hmm. 90 to 95% of them, if not more, are kind of already mm-hmm. one way or the other. Mm-hmm. It's a really small segment. Um, now, wait, which way those guys, those people switch is interesting. They tend to break pretty close to 50-50 at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So part of it's about moving some of those people, especially in a tight election. It is important to move some of those people one way or the other. Part of it's also making sure that your supporters show up, mm-hmm. um, which which is, which is why it's a dual dynamic all the time. You want to try to win over the people you can win over. You also want to make sure you don't alienate your, like your strong supporters, whether it's in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, because if any of them stay home, you're in trouble. Arguably, you could make that was arguably you could make you could argue that was the reason why Hillary Clinton lost, is that there was certain bases of Democratic voters who didn't turn out the way they had for Obama. Yes, and if you literally, if you'd replicated, that's what urban, I thought was fascinating. That yeah. the places Obama won that were key, Trump won to a degree. But also, if you replicated turnout in cities mm-hmm. for Obama to Clinton in 2016, mm-hmm. she would have won. Mm-hmm. If you just got the same level of turnout in urban areas, yeah, and she has less turnout in urban. And, there's this, yeah, there's this, so, there's this story that it was about like these small Rust Belt towns, mm-hmm. but literally, if you just gave her the same turnout in these Democratic strongholds, she would have won the election. And I, and I had an experience with that. So I went out and knocked on doors and asked people to come out and vote. And a couple of women showed up. And they were black women, and they said, um, "We this is like maybe." Three days before the election, mm-hmm. we 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 were all in on Obama. Um, we were hoping for a better candidate, but we decided we got we got to do something. So they were coming out to knock on doors, um, and uh, interestingly, they said they didn't support, they didn't want her, they didn't support her. She wasn't the candidate they wanted to choose, but they were voting. They were sort of rallying against what they thought was a greater problem, which is Trump. And I think that's how lots of people felt. And I will say, like, mm-hmm. I was firmly in her camp. So I forgave her all these flaws that it, 
you know, I see clearly, you know, I saw most of them pretty clearly, but I was like, but they are not as bad as his. It was the same thinking that people engage in right now yeah. with Trump, right? That he's not as bad as that guy, right? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what makes these elections so interesting is you need to keep the base in support and you need to try to win over people. With Trump, yeah. I don't think there's anything about the impeachment proceedings or what's happened that will undermine his base of support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The question is, will it turn any of those folks who happen to be undecided, which really aren't that many, away mm-hmm. but in a tight election it if it turns any people? of them away that's what i want to know does it does it motivate does it, so many people to come out and vote? it probably does on both sides though but this uh, is okay. i feel like this has been what we've been experiencing in donald trump's presidency since day one everything that he does because I like agree. all presidents he's divisive but he's maybe even more so everything he does animates the democrats and animates the republicans i voters. totally agree i think i so i yeah i couldn't agree more with that if donald trump has been if there's one positive for really the whole 2016 election, right, <laughs> is that I do think people are paying attention to politics yeah, I mean, in a way out, that they never did. The turnout in 2018 was just an historical anomaly. Like yeah. People showing up in a midterm election. He got people engaged, and, and normal, he's got them engaged and on normal, both sides and it was of the young, right, right. And it was like the thing that young, I thought was interesting was that a number of young yeah, people. Was, every demographic yeah. group went up, yeah, including young people. And so like no one's been able to do that. Donald Trump did that. We've seen this up on campus with people being interested in taking political science courses. It's gone up. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's job great. security. Job, that's <laughs> job security. <laughs> and people are interested. And people it. are learning about their government, and that's good. It so may not be the we, most like maybe the impeachment's not a bad way. thing for anybody. Yeah, but I don't see it as different in its effect because everything that happens under Trump's presidency seems to have this polarizing and motivating effect yeah. on both sides. And I expect this will just be yet another thing. Let me ask one final question, okay. and that is that: Do you think I thought that it was important if you believe in the balance of powers and, and the checks on power that you have to at least go through the motions you have to, if you feel mm-hmm. like that has happened if somebody has abused power or has committed yeah. a crime, that you have to do it even though you know that's going to happen i felt like this was an exercise in everyone at least trying to do their yes. jobs See, i agree you yeah. hear all the time that people complain like congress has given away too much authority the president's become more powerful well here you are. Mm-hmm. The, pre- the Congress is pushing back. And it may be done in a partisan way, but if you want Congress to push back on presidents when they may or may be doing something inappropriate or when they may be using their power too much or in certain ways, even a partisan impeachment is better than none. A partisan pushback is better than none. Mm-hmm. So at least you have that. And for the health of our balance of power system, it's not necessarily a bad thing, even if it's messy. All righty. Professor James Curry, thank you very much for joining us. I, I love this conversation. I, we're going to probably have another one at some point, but I uh, – oh, gosh. I wish I was – Wait till the Democratic nominee. <laughs> I know. We'll bring you back. <laughs> yeah, anytime. We'll, we'll see how it's going to go. Uh, join us again for the next episode of the uh, Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at vormed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpod. Podcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.